Hi friends, I have been looking forward to releasing this conversation with Nissa Brown for what feels like an eternity. Uh, Nissa Brown is an educational consultant who specializes in curriculum development for arts programs. But importantly for our conversation today, Nissa was also one of the contributors to the 2014 National Core Arts Standards. And she brings just a lot of artistry and a lot of clarity to this topic that can be kind of muddy for a lot of us, myself included. So regardless of how you feel about the standards in general or the national standards in particular, I really think you are going to enjoy hearing what Nissa has to share. You can learn more about Nissa with the link in the show notes, and you can either listen to our conversation on your podcast player, or you can watch it on YouTube. And with that, let's jump in. My name is Victoria Bowler, and this is episode 77 of Elemental Conversations. All right, Nissa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you today, in addition to just your general um, thought process on music curriculum and instruction, like the, the Lynn Erickson, the Understanding by Design, all of that um, universe, you were on the team that wrote the national standards. And I was hoping to dive in to some of that. So hopefully we can start off by you just giving us an overview, even though it seems so obvious, but, but tell me, because I'm not sure it is that obvious, tell me about the national standards and what they are. And then maybe we can get into what I refer to as the new standards, even though they're not that new, um, that versus new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yes, the yes, old standards. Okay. So, so talk to us, um, about some of that. Awesome. Yeah. So just to be clear about my, um, role in that. I was honored to be invited to serve on this, a subcommittee for grades three through five. So there was a core team in each of the five disciplines, mm. um, and that had 10 people on it. I was not on the core committee. <laughs> I was on the three through five committee. So my, my responsibility was to add to the thinking of the grades three through five standards that you see. And then the mm. core committee's job was to you know do the bigger picture vision things. And there were many things that were handed down to us, many things that we pushed back on, um, many things that we were able to influence and many things that we weren't. And that's that's the nature of a compromised document, uh, mm. like the National Core Art Standards. So, um, and then sometimes we would, you know, ask questions and the alignment stuff needed to happen um, above us, pardon the hierarchical reference. Um, and that's kind of what happened. So that was that was my that was my role. Um, and I learned so much uh, in the process. And it does seem like forever ago and yesterday at the same time. <laughs> Um, so the, the National Core Art Standards, uh, let me talk about them the way that I find is helpful in talking with teachers, mm. um, because there are lots of people who can do the National Core Art Standards from a policy lens, from an advocacy sure. lens, from a theory lens, and those are all super valuable lenses, but they're not the lens that I operate from. I operate from working with on the ground with teachers. And so I'm going to take it from that tack, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, um, so I see the National Core Art Standards as um, certainly an evolution of the 1994 standards. The 1994 standards were very skills-based. Um, we're a skills-based discipline. We're a process-based discipline. And so the skills are absolutely foundational to everything that we do. Full stop, period. I always have to say that first because otherwise people are like, but they need the skills. And they're right. We're right. They do need the skills, right? <laughs> so it's an evolution of building upon the skills-based standards of, in 1994. And what we understand about how the brain learns um, mm. is that learning things in isolation 
this is a bit reductionist, but it leads to why the standards are constructed the way they are. What we understand about the way that brain, brains learn is that if we do things in isolation and we don't understand um, how they connect to other things, how or why they matter, we don't retain them as well. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about the National Core Art Standards, the recent, the new ones, <laughs> um, is that they are an opportunity for us to I don't want to say ensure because we can't, but to be more intentional and more successful at helping students take their learning with them. And any music teacher I ask, why do you do this? They, mm -hmm. Because we want kids to take it with them, right? And so what the way that the core art standards are constructed, get at the how and the why of the skills. And that's what helps students hang on to things. That's that's a step towards conceptual learning, or what people sometimes describe as understanding. And when we truly understand something, we understand how musicians do what they do, or why they do what they do. When we get that, then we can use that understanding and transfer it mm -hmm. to an independent situation, whether that's in the classroom, it's in uh, a third grade classroom, not music classroom, but like a third grade classroom classroom, or it's on the soccer field, that they can transfer the skills that they've learned mm -hmm. and the processes and the strategies and take it with them. So that's sort of the intentional intentionality behind the core art standards. That's the promise of them. Mm. Um, and one of the ways that they do that is that they're organized by process. Yeah. So if we say, what is it that musicians do? Musicians create, perform, respond, and connect. And then if we say, how is it? How being how and why being the important questions, how do musicians create? There's actually an artistic process embedded, process components embedded that help us guide students to own that process. So how do musicians create, for instance? First they imagine, mm -hmm. then they plan, make, then they evaluate, refine, and then they present, which is intentionally not perform, it's present mm -hmm. because it can be informal. Um, it also looks at the why. So you'll notice within the standards, it talks about context, impact, influence, those are all ways at getting at why composers do what they do, why musicians do what they do. Um, so from a very practical standpoint, I think that's the important pieces of um, how the core art standards are created and how they can positively impact our students. Mm. So let me know if there's anything you wanted me to say that I missed. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Um, Okay, so you talked about that these are broken down by processes that musicians mm -hmm. do. And if we back up from that, it's like things that all artists do. And that's one of the, yes. the nice things, like this is a unifying document that, and you mentioned that we could look at this from the lens of advocacy. And I think that's one of the, yes. the really great tools that, that people like you have given us. It's like some common vocabulary where we can kind of bring all of the boats up with a rising tide for, yes. for the arts yes. and then ultimately for, for students as well. Um, one of the things that you danced around um, but we didn't delve into because I didn't ask. Um, one of the words that comes up is in addition to things like understanding and transfer is also this idea of artistic literacy. And I know that when the standards mm. talk about literacy, they do mean reading and writing and, and there's more, right? So, so maybe you right. can define that because I think that might play into our conversation. And I, I certainly think that it plays into, um, how these standards are constructed compared to, um, some of the state music standards that we have. Yeah. 
So I think this idea of artistic literacy, if, if for folks who really want to dive into this, and I can't like verbatim quote everything in there, yeah. um, but for folks who really want to dive into it, go to um, NCAS Arts website and look at the philosophical foundations and you'll see we like there's this big overview and this is where I usually have a visual to do this so I don't have it memorized but it's like the arts as communication the arts yeah. as personal expression right mm. it's those more meta things it's it's what do we really want students to take with them and that's the literacy that we're getting at is not the literacy that I was taught as a as a a young Kodai inspired teacher and I'm not dishing on Kodai. I, you know, I, I've taught in Kodai levels programs for 20 years, um, and I bring this perspective to it, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that it's, it's, um, you know, building. It, it's about helping us think about how do we listen, and how do we think. I'm going to use the word critically, but maybe I mean intentionally. Yeah. Yep. How do we listen for context? How do we build curiosity? into what we're doing so that when we hear something, we immediately are curious about it instead of judgmental about it, right? All of mm -hmm. those are pieces of the literacy that we're talking about. Um, so it's really, really broad. And to reduce it to the idea of rhythmic and melodic literacy, yep. it's, it's ethnocentric, first of all, um, but it's also not at all the spirit um, of the uh, of the of the standards at all. So there's so much more promise there. Um, yep. And the challenge is that there's so much promise. How do we do it when we see our kids 30 minutes a week? So lest sure. anybody listen to me and think, she's so out of touch. No, I get it. But understanding the possibilities helps us then uh, prioritize what we can do with the time that we have. Mm. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Okay. So when you describe artistic literacy, you mentioned things like, and I know you don't have your, I didn't give you time to prepare like a, a PowerPoint presentation or anything like that, right. but we, people have resources. You're talking about things like um, how we can transfer it to uh, communication or to personal expression or to maybe something like collaboration. And all of these things are connected to what we might consider to be like a sequence of melodic understandings or a sequence of melodic patterns. But what you're saying is we take that and then we layer on this piece of understanding on top of it, right? And so what you're describing with artistic literacy is also very similar to how we might describe concepts. And and when we talk about concepts, like if I were to put on a coat I hat, I might be like, oh, a concept is melodic contour or like a concept is like this specific, you know, duration of sounds, right? But you're describing concept another level up. So for people who who hear that word kind of being thrown around, um, we're using it in maybe a different context than you might have heard in your Kodai level one class. So maybe, um, I know this is something that you care about, maybe you want to talk about concepts and how those tie into the standards. Yeah, so this idea of concepts, yeah, with my with my Kodai hat, so the concept that I'm teaching is Tan Titi, or the concept right. that I'm teaching is pentatonic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we need to see this idea of concepts at a sort of micro and macro level. And there's no right or wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of them are important. So mm -hmm. this idea of concept, let me just go ahead and define it. This is based on the work of Dr. Lynn Erickson and Dr. Lois Lanning, Concept-Based Curriculum and Instruction, um, which is uh, being carried forward um, by Rachel French, Tiffany Brown, and company. Um, uh, uh, Rachel, along with Carla Marshall, wrote a book called Concept-Based Inquiry and Action. Mm -hmm. So for folks who want a little bit more information, those are some places to go. Um, I have the privilege of working with them as an art specialist in their institute, and it's really transformed 
not my thinking. The thinking was there, but what it's yeah. transformed is my ability to articulate what it is I've always cared about yeah. and structure it in a way that makes sense to arts teachers. Because nobody taught me what I'm about to tell you. Nobody taught me in music. I had to look outside of music and then bring it back um, into the arts. And so I'm so grateful for it because it's every it's almost everything I've ever valued and not known how to do. <laughs> yeah. So, um, a lot, and a lot of it's built into the standards too. So it's not an unrelated question. So when we yep. talk about uh, concepts, definitionally, it's um, a concept is um, a one to two word noun, maybe a phrase that transfers across time, place, and situation. So for instance, the idea of dance transfers across time, place, cultures, situations. The idea of Baroque dance ah. is not a concept because it's locked in time. So that's just that's one small example, right? Certainly. So what we're looking for, if what we want is for students to transfer, we need to be able to provide them with concepts and study of concepts mm -hmm. that transfer. It seems like a silly thing to say when I say it that way, but that was a revelation to me. <laughs> so this idea of micro concepts. So for instance, if we look at... Um, if we look at the idea of form, let's say, form is a macro concept. Basically, all the elements of music, elements of any art form, are all more macro concepts that can be broken down, right? They can be broken down into uh, binary form. They can be broken down into same and different. They can be broken down into more, um, think about it from a Kodai perspective, mm -hmm. the comparatives, right? We can break right. all those things down into smaller things. But there's also rhythm within music, and there's bigger rhythm too. We can look at like the rhythm of poetry, or we can look at the rhythm of the clouds moving across the sky. Sorry for being esoteric, but yeah. the rhythm can also be a more macro concept than even music, right? So the important part about the, the whole macro and micro concept thing is that in order for students to see connections across disciplines and across their world, we need to have some macro concepts. Mm -hmm. But in order for them to gain expertise and depth in our discipline, which is the only way they really can become musicians is through that depth, we need to use more micro concepts. Mm -hmm. And so what helps us modulate between those two is the relationship of those concepts of macro and micro, which is enduring understandings or conceptual understandings or generalizations, whatever people call them. Um, so anyways, that's how they get put together. Um, that's how we put concepts in relationship or one way to put concepts in relationship, which mm -hmm. then applies directly to curriculum design. Um, I always like to put the why in there. Otherwise, why does it matter? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned enduring understandings. I see that as another kind of piece that, that weaves into this conversation, you know, and mm -hmm. one of the things that Nissa, you and I talked about before we pressed record is um, how much I know both of you and both you and I care about making things um, actionable and, and practical. And I, yes. and I mentioned to you, like, it's not for my listeners, it's for me, right? Like I'm, I'm the teacher that I want this conversation for. Um, sure. So we, we will get into some of the like more skill side action, like in an active music room, what does, what does this look like? Right. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Because you're right that right now it is still very kind of like airy fairy, like conceptual understandings and really transferred right. knowledge. Right. But just to stay right. kind of in the clouds, because I like it up here too. Um, talk to us about <laughs> enduring understandings and, and kind of how that um, you might view that as maybe a, a bucket to put our skills in or maybe like an umbrella to put our skills under. Talk to us about enduring understandings. 
Yeah, so the purpose of Enduring Understandings is um, to make sure that students are understanding the connection between concepts effectively, because that's what the brain hangs on to, right? So it's concepts in relationship that create uh, a conceptual understanding. Mm -hmm. And conceptual understanding, enduring understanding, big idea, generalization, name your curriculum design style. They all say they all mean the same thing. Now, just like there are macro and micro concepts, there are also macro and micro understandings, right? And so depending on which world we operate in, um, in the International Baccalaureate, there's a lot of, um, which is a concept-based approach, um, there's a lot of very macro concepts. And one of the big pushbacks I get from IB folks is, what am I supposed to do with this central idea? What am I supposed to do with this statement of inquiry? It's, it's, It's unwieldy. How do I unpack it, right? So those really, really big kind of airy fairy, um, you know, uh, understandings can be helpful in terms of helping us figure out what we care about, but they're not always implementable, right? Yep. And so this whole, I, I think about, you know, those macro understandings are, are really helpful, but we also need to unpack and make sure that we have more, um, more specific, if you will, understandings yeah. that help guide instruction, so basically, here's I'm actually going to do in, in order to talk about enduring understandings. Actually, I'm going to refer to skills because it's yeah. it's the, the relationship is what matters. So oftentimes we um, we'll be asked to write things in units, and when I talk about units, I don't mean a unit of ton tt or a unit of pentatonic or so me or low so. What I mean when I say units is what curriculum design folks ask us, our, our curriculum coaches ask us to write in a unit, and we say and I was this person, FYI, yeah. we don't write in units because we have a spiral scope and sequence. Mm-hmm. And I remember having, I'm going to tell the story and I promise I'll come back to your question. You're good. You're um, good. I remember I was, I was the performing arts leader, the arts leader at a school that I was teaching at. And I um, went into the curriculum, the, the curriculum director's office for the whole school. And she and I had a conversation and I was, I told her, we, well, we can't write in units. I was the performing arts coordinator at the time, mm-hmm. right? We can't write in units because we have a spiral scope and sequence. So I told her straight up. Now, I should also preface the story by saying she and I had a trusting relationship. <laughs> this is not advice because, for people to go into their <laughs> Well, no, it, 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 it plays into the impact it had on me. So because I trusted her, I was willing to hear what she had to say next. I see. I see. So I said... We teach in a spiral scope and sequence. And she looked at me straight in the face with all positive intention in her heart. And she said, well, I sure hope so. And I'll be honest, for the most of the earlier part of my life, I would have been like, shut down. And whether or not I would have left the room at that moment physically, I would have energetically left the room, right? Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, maybe I'd had enough coffee that morning. I'd sat in extra meditation. I don't know what it was. I was like, you know what? I'm going to hear her out. Let me see. Ya. Now, I was still sure I was right. I was still sure I was right that we couldn't write in units, but I was going to play along. I was going to play along. So I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, math has a spiral scope and sequence, and so does language arts and science, and, and they write in units. And then I got curious. I thought, well, I'm sure it doesn't apply to us. I'm sure it doesn't. But what holds their units together? Like, if, if they have a spiral scope and sequence, how do they know when to stop and make a unit end? 
if their spiral scope and sequence keeps going? I, I genuinely had that question. So I asked her, and I'll be honest, that I don't really remember her answer. It obviously wasn't super transformative because it, it didn't stick with me. But I did go and ask some of my other math and science colleagues and language arts classroom teachers, basically, um, and a science specialist. And I was like, how do you tie a unit together? What does that look like? And effectively, the, uh, the answer was an enduring understanding. And I thought, wait, is it, could it really be that simple? That an enduring understanding is what could tie a unit together or multiple enduring understandings. But let's stick with one. So I can be teaching my rhythmic sequence, my melodic sequence, my form sequence, my meter sequence, any set of skills, instrument technique, vocal technique, doesn't matter. Whatever the skills are, I can be teaching all of that. And what that means is at the end of a unit, I ask students to, to think about the relationship of how or why musicians use those skills. Mm -hmm. That's all an enduring understanding is. So for instance, if my enduring understanding for the unit, and, and start with one, like none of this like three to five garbage, if you've never done this before, start with one for one quarter, right? Let's say my one enduring understanding for that quarter is something like, I get in trouble when I make these up on the spot, but here I go. Something like <laughs> musicians communicate mood and emotion through their choice of tempo, dynamics, and instrumentation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Second graders can do that. Second graders can do that if I guide them well. So what that means is we study comparatives. If you don't get any further, you can do it with comparatives, right? Dynamics, loud or soft. Yep. Tempo, slow or fast. They don't have to know fancy Italian words for any of that. But by the end, if what I'm talking about is composers, then by the end of that unit, my summative assessment or whatever your district calls it or your school calls it, I want to assess them making some kind of musical choice about dynamics, mm -hmm. tempo, and instrumentation, and the mood they're hoping to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I want to get some sense of their thinking on that. And if we use visuals, if we use sentence stems, sentence frames, yep. circle your choice, yep. second graders can do that. Mm -hmm. They can do it. But it means that I have to backward design from an understanding, not from, not forward design from a set of skills. All right, I'm going to slow my roll. Where, where are you at? What are you thinking, wondering? I'm thinking, yes. <laughs> um, one of one of the things um, one of the things that I hear you say, and I think will probably be important because this was important for me as well, um, is that you are not suggesting. And I know you've you've already said that, but you're not suggesting that we throw away our scope and sequence or our sequence of melodic concepts. You're not suggesting that we stop teaching ta and titi. You're ex you're suggesting that we expand what we are asking students to do, right? And you keep mm -hmm. referencing these um, these words, the how and the why, the how and the why, and the how and the why. Mm -hmm. And you've also given us a very um, concrete example of how this can look in a second grade classroom. And I like that even though, um, you know, actually Nissa for second grade, I'm actually, I have to be doing uh Takadimi in second grade. And you're like, oh, no, cool. actually, no, you don't. Because if you only get to um, comparatives, which we would think of, right. and I'm using, I'm using air quotes, like kindergarten concepts, you're saying no right. matter where you enter this stream yes. of musical skills and musical patterns, there's always something that we can be asking of of students beyond yes. 
read this rhythm in standardized Western notation. Yes, absolutely. And what it has to do with, it gets at those words that people get their hackles up in the standards, impact, yeah. influence, intention. Mm -hmm. Everything I just talked about was all of those things at a seven-year-old level. Yes. What? How do you want to impact your audience? What influence do you want your music to have on your audience? What is your artistic intention? I want my music to sound sad. I want my music to sound like it matches an event, right? Mm -hmm. I want to write a piece of music for a soccer match. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what what artistic choices based on the past nine weeks of study that we did are you going to make? I'm going to limit your choices <laughs> because we've only had time to do dynamics, tempo, and instrumentation. Yep. But you can do that because you're seven and I've set you up for it, right? So it's a but but if we don't backward design from the understanding, it's um a happy accident if kids get there. Ooh, yep. Right? Yep. And 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 that's that's what I thrived off of actually. It's like I would have those like those, those like happy synapse connections. Like I remember a kid said to me one day, he's like, "You know what? Music can change the world." And I thought, "That's why I teach." And then I thought, "But how do I teach from that? How do I try mm -hmm. to how do I help kids see that music can change the world? And mm -hmm. we can backward design from that." Right? We that's music can change the world is a bit of a reductive or meta <laughs> enduring understanding, right? Uh -huh. But it's those realizations that you think, yes, that's what I wanted you to get to, but I didn't mm -hmm. backward design from there. We were busy reading four beat patterns, which listen, four beat patterns are like sight words. English teachers shouldn't stop teaching sight words, but if right. all they taught was sight words, we would think it was pretty pedantic. Mm -hmm. Same mm -hmm. thing for us. Teach them those four beat patterns, let them own the rhythms, let them own the melodies, but what can they do with them? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was talking to my administrator the other day and, um, kind of explaining some of my own, my own takes on this. Um, mm. and I talked about, um, if I, if I told your first graders to go out and memorize passages of Mark Twain, and then we put them all on a stage in pretty dresses on risers and everybody came and like, they wheeled out grandma. We all sat and we stared at them and they all recited passages from Mark Twain. Let's imagine that all of the parents sitting in the audience turn to each other and they're like, my child is so talented. My child is so gifted, right? The teachers in the audience would say, uh, well, they were just memorizing. Right. So so if a parent is like, listen to that syntax, listen to the character development, right? Like listen to all the stuff that they can do. The teachers in the audience are like, no, they they just memorized it. Right. But if mm -hmm. kids walk on stage and they read you a story that they took from their brain and they wrote it with pictures, with words, with some combination of of that, like with whatever um, you know, heritage language they best describe their ideas in, um, everyone in the audience would be like, amazing, right? Like it makes it that much cooler because right. students have done it on their own, even though it is not the syntax of Mark Twain with the character development, with the plot point, or you know, pick, pick your author. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be um Mark Twain. But um the idea that even though it's very exciting on some level to sit in the room and watch everyone have a complete uniform learning experience where we're all reading the same thing at the same time at the way the teacher says, like on one hand, that's cool, right? And and we've also been trained to think that that's really cool. On the other yeah. hand, wow, maybe it's even cooler if if we step back and, um, you know, the phrase in the ORF community is, is let children be their own composer. So, so all mm -hmm. of that rambling to say, I, I see, um, so much tie in to what you're describing and what we're already doing 
but maybe we haven't quite peeled back like an, an onion layer of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think there's a couple, I think, yeah, speaking of layers, I think there's a couple layers to it. Cause if you ask any music teacher, why did you go into this? I've never had one tell me because I wanted to teach Ta and Titi or have them move to Rondo form. Right. Right. Or play in F scale at 120. Like mm-hmm. nobody, nobody in our mm-hmm. profession has ever said that to me. They have much bigger ideas of what, what they want for students. What we haven't been taught to do is to design from those big picture things. Mm-hmm. And so we design from the, if you're, <laughs> if you're listening, you can't see my hands, but we design from the micro and hope yeah. we get to the macro yeah. as opposed to designing from the macro and mm-hmm. I'm not going to say ensure, making it more likely that students get there. Um, So I think that that, that's a piece of it. I also want to go back to this idea that I think that, you know, if you look at Bloom's Taxonomy, create is the top of it. So I'm absolutely not going to deny that creation is an incredible synthesis um, and invitation for newness. And I also think because we are a performing arts discipline, perform... I work across arts areas and perform is what most music teachers do most of, certainly in a U.S. context, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that way all over the world, which was a revelation to me when I moved overseas. Um, Imagine the world is different in different places. I felt so silly when I realized that. Um, (laughs) But in terms of music education, I mean, I realize it in other ways, but music education is like, oh, we value different things in different places. Imagine that. Um, But in in the States, when we think about music, we think about performing, right? In a school context, it's very ensemble-based, generally speaking zero wrong with that right that we get we get to design based on what we value that's fine Mm. i think even if our um performances that we do which are similar to the mark twain thing you were talking about potentially if even through our performances we had students introduce our songs and talk about their learning reveal the learning that they had so for instance uh, another, here I go, on the spot, Enduring Understandings. Um, ensembles improve their um, impact on their audience yep. Yep. through expression, um, uh, you know, whatever it would be. I'm not coming up with a micro concepts. But if we had students explore that in the process, and then when we're introducing one of our pieces said, we practice this, this, and this, and we realize that the impact of that was a better ensemble sound. Our next piece is blah, blah, blah. Here we go. Mm-hmm. We're at least revealing some of the practice strategies, some of the things that we've learned. Because one of my highest values, if anybody says to me, Nissa, what do you value most? I've got a few of them, but one of them is the whole is always greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Not just in a choir, but in life. Like we can change more things. We can be more impactful if we work together than I ever could individually. So if that's one of my values, and it matches our school values and all of those things, how can I design learning from that, right? And so that's an, that's an example of a way to do it. And so if we share that, if we share that learning, we make that learning transparent somehow mm-hmm. on stage, it's getting at what we all know. And that is kind of back to that advocacy piece. There's a lot more going on here than singing the same words at the same time and getting on and off the risers quietly. Right. So whether we're creating, we're performing, we're responding or we're connecting, there's broader understandings that we're trying to teach to whether or not they're articulated. Mm. Um, We know them in our heads and in our hearts, but we don't necessarily know how to put them down 
on paper. And when our curriculum folks ask us to, they don't know how to help us. Yeah. Yep. And then we, then we feel bad and we don't need to feel bad because it's all there. It's just a matter of drawing it out in a way that makes sense to them. Um, makes sense to us first and foremost, but then also that they can see that there's more going on. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the work that I have the privilege of doing is sitting with arts teams and saying, what matters to you? And I basically wordsmith and scribe and push with some questions here and ask clarifying question there and throw in a micro concept there. And, you know, by the time they're done, they have something that represents what they're doing. Um, and what they care about. And once we have a curriculum document that we care about, it's a lot uh, easier to want to spend time with it instead of mm -hmm. check somebody else's boxes. Um, and that's what I care about is really making sure that teachers feel empowered by the quote unquote constraints placed on them. Because ultimately, the constraints that a lot of our curriculum design or curriculum directors have for us yeah. actually help us get to where we want to go. They just don't know how to help us get there. Yes. Yeah. Um, 10 million. Yes. And we think about like how we would do this with students. We don't say like, all right, hello, second grade. Today, my enduring understanding is that uh, mm -hmm. musicians create with intention. So you need to have an intention and go ahead. Off, off, <laughs> off you go. Right. Because go that intend. would be, <laughs> you know, so, so in the right. same way that f to our students, we do choice within structure this idea of choice within structure, we can just kind of maximize it. And, um, you know, the wiser that we get as music teachers, we kind of broaden our structure. We keep our choices, kind of broaden our structure. And now hopefully we are moving towards a place where our structure is not, you know, like the nine or 11 skills of, you know, sing, play, move, read, right. Hopefully our structure is getting a little bit more, um, expansive and transferable, you know? So go ahead. Can I throw one thing in? Um, oh, yeah. I, one of the most exciting thing that happens when um, when I've been been with a site for a while is they when I walk in, every site has a scope and sequence, no matter if it's elementary, middle, high school, like they all have a sense of what happens when sometimes a method book helps them with that. Sometimes their, you know, uh, or for code training helps them with that. But there's always a skills based scope and sequence in place. And that's fantastic. I mean, I can I can work with that. That's amazing. But what slowly comes to the fore as we start to think about what is it that we want from an understanding level is that people will start to see actually a scope and sequence to their understandings. And that to me is kind, kind of speaks to what you were saying is that, you know, artistic intention for a first grader, if we say artistic intention is one of the most important concepts, I want you to be able to communicate what you want to communicate as an artist. We can have an enduring understanding about artistic intention for six-year-olds, mm -hmm. but we can also have an enduring understanding for sixth graders. Yeah. And we can design a scope and sequence of understanding through the years, just like we can with the skills and built on those skills. So as we get more micro and more robust with the skills that we're offering students, mm -hmm. their understanding can also increase. So when we think of skills, uh, we think of uh, scope and sequence, not just for skills, but also for um, understandings. Now we start to see the power because if kids truly understand and can transfer, we have less work to do every year because oh, they'll yeah. bring it with them. Now, I know I had 30% turnover every year, so I understand that there's a flaw in what I just said. But <laughs> um, but there's but there's a piece of it that is true um, as well. 
Well, and gosh, Nessa, like what you just said about if we have the same enduring understanding that is actually truly our spiral, not like mm -hmm. kindergarten is comparatives and second grade is Takadimi, then when a kid does show up in second grade and everyone's working on Takadimi, Takadimi is so not the point, right? Because this kid yes. can interact with the material through an enduring understanding or through, you know, all of these different um, kind of pathways to this one tiny rhythmic pattern, you know? And so just mm -hmm. to um, kind of expand what you're saying. Like it feels, it feels, uh, like a little bit too open-ended for me. And then sometimes it's like, no, 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 here's, here's the structure. And like, this is, this is the reason it works is because we have this enduring understanding. I want to, I want, you know, cause I said at the beginning that we were going to make this practical and I think we've yes. given some, some practical things in, but for my sake, I would benefit from us going whoop, a level, a level even deeper. Um, sure. You, you talked about a scope and sequence and we keep the scope and sequence and we keep the skills. Um, if you were in the generation that was out of their training when the new standards, again, I call them the new standards. My husband, I was like, I'm talking right. to someone about the new standards. And my husband was like, do you mean the 2014 standards? I was like, yeah, the new ones. <laughs> so if you were, um, if you were teaching during that time and not at a university when those were implemented, we might not have gotten, I'll say like, I did not, I don't, I did not get the, um, here are the big airy fairy concepts of the national standards and here's what they mm -hmm. actually look like. So for me, mm -hmm. when I was looking at them, I was like, what on earth, what am I supposed to do with this? Kind of like what you were talking about with, with mm -hmm. some of the other teams you work with. I was like, yeah, well, I'm not going to go ask them to like with guidance, demonstrate their understanding of, you know, art artistic literacy, whatever, whatever it is. Right. Um, and then I looked at my sister's standards. Um, she's a first grade teacher and her standards were like count by tens. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, I, I know that I could ask a kid to count by tens and I know what it would sound like. But if I'm, if I'm asking someone to like um, demonstrate meaning through the presentation of artistic work, I'm going to need I'm going to need a couple layers, right, to see how that how that gets implemented. So maybe we can dive right. into that with our last with our last little little bit. How's that sound? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to come at it from a couple of a couple of angles. So every site that I work with is different. So I'm going to throw um, I, and I work within the context of every site, whatever that is. So every curriculum director has slightly different expectations, slightly. Th some things are OK, some things are not OK. So I'm going to give some ideas. And of course, you'll need to check out in your context what can yep. and can't work, what is yep. allowed, all those things. OK, so disclaimer in place. Um, so. One of the things I want to say, I'm going to I'm going to go a little bigger and then come down specifically to your question. Um, I don't know anybody who can teach all of the standards and collect assessment data on all of them in the time that they're given. OK, so let's just start with that. Now, some people say that's a negative. I say that's mm -hmm. a positive because if your standards were so easy that you could meet them in 30 minutes a week, something tells me you'd be seeing your kids for 30 minutes a week. So when people start to get a little bit like they're too, they're too big, I want to be like, great, that's advocacy for me to say, hey, given the time I have, I can teach this many standards. If right. you give me 15 minutes extra a week, I can teach this many. Mm -hmm. So use the standards as advocacy. I feel like I'm on a soapbox. I apologize, but I really feel strongly about this. Yep. Um, so we, we don't want reductive, easy standards. We're, we're, we, our kids can do more than that. And advocacy is good. Mm, <laughs> okay. So if you can't do all the standards, I guide people, this is part of the understanding by design process through either a priority standard selection or a bundling 
uh, process, mm. which means that we say, okay, of all of the 20, I'm just making that up, it's about yep. 20, yep. white box standards on the National Core Art Standards, right? The, the performance standards, they call them, the grade mm -hmm. level standards. Of those 20, we can teach nine of them a year. Not nine of them every quarter or every unit, but nine of them throughout the year. Some of those will teach in more than one quarter. Some of them will only teach once. So it's kind of like priorities within priorities, if you yeah. will. But yeah. we get really intentional about selecting the ones that we believe match our school, our community, um, our values, what we most want for students, what aligns with our middle school program. And that's different. No, no site has ever selected that I know of the exactly the same set of standards. And that's mm -hmm. as it should be. We're the professionals, right? Okay, so that having been said, you can't teach them all. You can choose on purpose which ones you do teach, right? And then from there, we start to think about, okay, so my question always is, what does it look like if a kid would do this in the real world? eventually, right? Mm -hmm. And then once we start to ask those questions, we start to actually get ideas about assessment, right? So it's like if a kid understand, we want students to understand the context of a performance or the context of a creation, mm -hmm. I start to break that standard apart. And sometimes we call it unpacking standards. I unpack everything via concepts these days. I see everything as a concept. So <laughs> um, it <laughs> Oh, I could I could launch into jokes. But anyways, it, yeah, it's, it's a nerd thing. But I see everything as concepts. And then I think, okay, what, what does it look like to do that authentically in the world? Right? So what does it look like eventually for them to do it? And what does it look mm -hmm. like for a six year old to do it? I keep picking on first graders today. Yep. But you know what yep. I mean? I do. And then I and then once I start to think about what it looks like authentically, now I've got some assessment ideas. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I will say, and this is where some I, I don't know, you have to check with your district to see if it's okay. Sometimes I include standards that have multiple concepts in it, like impact, I'm just making this up, impact, influence, context, and artistic intention. That's too much for a six-year-old all at once. So what I'll do is I'll include that standard, but I'll strike through three of those four concepts and come back to that standard later in the year mm. and add a new concept. So sometimes you can't teach the whole standard all at once because mm. it's not either the only focus that you're working on right now, if it were your only focus, you could do it, but you're also working on a respond standard and you're working on a create standard and you want that balance. So you say, okay, I'm prioritizing context right now, but I'm not gonna ask them about intention, impact and influence. I don't know that there's ever a standard that has all those four in it, but just as- No, your, your point stands, yeah, yeah. So, so, once I, so, so once I start to think about what does it look like authentically and I've gotten rid of what I'm not going to do right now, then I can start to say, okay, what skills do kids need in order to meet that assessment? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we assess one standard at a time, and sometimes we can assess a respond and a create at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm looking at two standards at the same time, then I'm asking myself, again, what's an authentic real world? When I say authentic, I mean something that kids would, real, real musicians would do in the real world at a developmentally appropriate level, right? Yes. That's what I mean yes. when I say authentic. Um, that, that word is problematic. Um, in other contexts, but that's I know, what I mean in I this know. context. Um, and so then I start to think about, okay, so if this is, you know, this is what I, the, what real musicians do in the real world, what skills do students need? And you know what it's going to go back to? The elements of music, which you have a scope and sequence for. So look at the skills that you're already intending to teach and then figure out the how and the why those things matter and design instruction from that, basically. Mm -hmm. And there are some great EUs and EQs that are in the National Core Art Standards already. Yep. I always want to empower people to create their own or edit what's there. Because mm. um, I, 
because you're the one who needs to translate this for your students. The, the EUs and EQs are some of the first good ones I've seen, to be honest with you, in the National Core Art Standards. Yeah. I didn't used to believe in EUs and EQs because I didn't see good ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those are helpful, but they're not the only EUs and EQs. There's an infinite possibility of EUs and EQs out there. And so I love to empower teachers again to say, hey, here's how we can construct those. And we can pull concepts out of the standards to create EUs and EQs. And then we can start to think about not just assessing skills, but assessing understandings and assessing transfer, mm -hmm. um, which would be an entirely other podcast, but it is possible. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, that's good. So we all heard from a, a standards, a pro standards person herself that we're allowed to change the enduring understandings and the essential questions. Yeah, there's, I mean, they, they were written for pre-K through 12. Like it yeah. is the same EU pre-K through 12. Yeah. I defy you to teach your kindergartners some of those EUs. Like it's, they're mm -hmm. not appropriate, but they weren't mm -hmm. intended to be broken down. Just like we talk about like scope and sequence of skills, scope and sequence of understandings. I actually started to deconstruct those understandings and like level them for third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And now I just tend to sort of create my own but mm -hmm. that's another approach too. another very practical approach is to look at what's there and then craft from there, um, sort of tease out, you know, your kids best what they can do. Yeah. I was reading, um, I don't, maybe it was pro it's something on project-based learning and they said something about breaking down the standards into I can statements. And I was like, Oh, duh. Right. And it's like that one. And you, you've talked about this, um, already in this conversation, but like this one little thing that you're like, I should have known that, but until I read it, like in this context from this person in this, you know, with this yes. amount of coffee, right. That's when I was like, right. Oh, I get it. I get, it. Yeah. I don't get it, but I, I get it much, much more yes. than I did before. Um, something you said, Oh gosh, that I wanted to go back to Nessa. Um, Oh, I have a very, um, this is something I've always wondered about. And it's a very like <laughs> tactile question. I might ask this and you're like, Victoria, you're totally missing the point of everything I've said. Um, so not to miss the point of everything you've said, Nissa, but um, <laughs> when I, again, going back to my sister, I have two sisters who teach kind of general academic content. And then me and my other sister, we are music teachers. So when I look at my sisters who teach general academic content, their standards are like, go through this one and then this one and then this one and then this one. And they're kind of sequential. And I just heard you mm -hmm. say that we are, I'm, I'm going to use the word allowed and I use it kind of tongue in cheek, but Nizza says that we're allowed right. to assess more than one enduring understanding in like a summative assessment, which makes me feel great because that's what, um, you know, when I look at what I've been doing, it's like, how do you, how do you separate out the responding from the connecting from the, like, these are, these are so interconnected, yeah. right? So what's they're your not opinion? Supposed to be. Yes. So what's your opinion on, uh, going through these? Like I have a unit on creating, I have a unit on performing. Mm. I have a unit, like what's your opinion on, on that approach? Or so, sorry, sorry to interrupt Go ahead. your opinion. And then also like, the the opinion of kind of the the standards committee you know to yeah yeah so so the the standards so the if you read into the documentation create perform respond and connect are not discrete processes like again i defy you as a professional musician to be a performer who doesn't respond right and connect at least while you're preparing a performance like it's right. not authentic right not authentic to the way that we do our art yep. so that's if you dig into the documentation there's no intention that things get separated out right um let's see how how concisely can i say this within the 
Um, and so I want to say two other things with number one, within the perform process, respond is built in responding to your own work. It's called evaluate and refine. Right. Okay. So it's actually embedded in the process. And one of the differentiation factors that I always, um, uh, talk with, with folks is that evaluate, refine in perform for me is evaluating and refining their own work. Mm -hmm. Whereas any of the analyze or evaluate in respond to me makes sense that it's responding to someone else's work, right? So it's built in, it's already built into the process components, right? So, so there's that piece of it too. So again, you can't really separate it out. It's not authentic to the extent to which you include it depends on the amount of time you have with students, the age of the students, the experience of the students, you know, all the the continuity that you have with students. So middle school teachers don't always see their kids every year, much less every semester, right? Especially yep. theater, dance teachers, visual arts teachers. So sometimes music teachers too. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is if you look at the model cornerstone assessments, yes. music chose to do them by process. So the model cornerstone is outlined by here is how different ways you can assess the Let's stick with perform, perform process. And the model cornerstone runs you through all the process components, all five of them. If you look at any of the other model cornerstone assessments, unless they've been changed since last time I looked at them, they actually have multiple standards, often from create, perform, respond, and connect that culminate in some kind of a independent something or another, call it a project, call it a whatever you want to. I know. So- I feel like what I feel like there's I feel like permission given like it's actually embedded in either the standards themselves or the supporting documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that that can be overwhelming for teachers. Sometimes it's like, how do sure. I know what to put together? But once we talk through it, you know what to put together, right? If you're if you have experience teaching and I say to you, what's the most important thing that a kid does by the end of third grade? You can tell me and we can find standards that match that and mm-hmm. we can go chook, 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 put them together and you've got your standards that you're meeting yep. or at least partially meeting for that mm-hmm. final third grade summative assessment. Yep. Um, so whether they're all performed because your point is the perform process or it's about create supported by a respond and a connect standard because that might be the most authentic thing. I mean, mm-hmm. connect is embedded already, but it's intentionally a connect standard. Yep. Um, so it's a yes and I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's very, very helpful because when I, like I said, like I, I'll look at them for for a summative assessment and most of my summative assessments, well, maybe maybe all of them now that I'm thinking through um, are some sort of creative choice. It's an improvisation, it's an mm-hmm. arrangement, it's a composition, whether that is like as an individual or as a collaboration or if it gets extended and we recycle it later, blah, 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 blah. But then I'm like, well, I guess I'm only ever... I guess I'm only ever like summatively assessing one thing. And then it's like, well, no, because in order to do that, we have to do all of this other stuff. And then I'm like, well, right. maybe, maybe I need to silo it a little bit more, but I don't really want to silo it. So Nissa says that we don't have to. And so that's, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I that's mean, nice. again, I think, I think it depends for, so for me, for me, I combine the thinking of what are the standards and what's the enduring understanding. So I yeah. kind of have different categories of enduring understandings I think about also. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, what's the, what are the standards I'm trying to meet? But what's the most important enduring understanding for that unit? Because if the most important enduring understanding is that musicians use a process yeah. in order to improve their work, yes. Um, 
something like that or use an intentional artistic process and I could include micro concepts if I wanted to, then maybe it makes more sense to actually have three perform standards mm -hmm. and really assess the, their understanding of perform. That might, that makes sense. But in the whole year, I wouldn't want only perform assessments because that's at least in elementary music, I wouldn't want that because mm -hmm. that's not, that's not authentic to what I value, but also to what we the sort of broader picture of what we want for a generalist music education at the elementary level. Um, so that, that might differ also if you're, if it's a performance based ensemble, you're going right. to lean towards perform. No problem yeah. with that. That's great. You don't want to completely neglect the other things either, but mm -hmm. the course that you're teaching is also going to sort of help you flow with what you prioritize. And to me, that's as it should be. And the standards were written, like, let's be grateful. The standards were written in a flexible way. They make yes. you the professional instead of a, you have to do, none of us want a textbook that we have to flip the page to and be held to, right? Like, I don't know any music teacher that really wants that. I know people who do it, but not people who want it. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you so, mean. I know. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Well, Nissa, I have held you uh, longer than I told you that I would. So as we are All wrapping good. up here, I know that there is a lot more that we could be talking about. And I know that there are a lot more opportunities for people to connect with you and work with you. If, if this is like, um, like the tip of the iceberg and their brains are going like 30 million different directions, right. And they're driving in their car and they're Sorry. like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Uh, so how can we, how can we find you? How can we connect you with you? And what's our process for working with you at all of the different levels that you offer? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the, uh, my website is musicedforward.com. So you can uh, reach me there. There's also, um, I would invite you to, uh, I think you're going to put the link probably in the page. Um, yep. so musicedforward.com slash resources. There is, uh, the ultimate music curriculum design toolkit, um, which I have had many people say to me, you should be selling this and they're probably right, but it's free. So go get it before I decide to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's 20 some pages of this curriculum nerdery that we've been talking about uh, and lots of resources uh, to uh, to support your work. If this is stuff that you love or stuff that you're doing in your district, uh, you want to do better in your district, you want your curriculum folks to help you more with, here's some support resources for that. So um, that's a great place to start. And um, I have the privilege of working with sites both remotely and um, on on site uh, in person consulting now that we can travel again, thank goodness. Um, and that's the work that I love most because it's transformative. We show up in real time, real space and um, support your vision for music ed uh, and what you want for your students. And I, I love that work. So that's another way that we could work together too. Fabulous. All right, Nissa, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. Um, it's My been pleasure. a very energizing conversation. I know uh, I'm oh, not good. alone in, in how much fun this has been. Good. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Victoria. <laughs>